If only I had known what would happen when I did so-and-so. Wouldn't it be a much better life if we listened to the warnings that we all received? Think about it. Don't touch that hot stove. Uh, Please slow it down on the highway, sir. Read all directions before starting. Do not stick that into the electrical outlet. Do not insert that into your ear canal. Do not machine wash. Hand wash only. Be sure to locate water and electric lines before digging. Does this outfit make me look fat? Yes, that's a warning too. Warnings are for our good. They help, to av- help us to avoid needless suffering, don't they? Well, having just come through the absolute devastation that prompted the book of Lamentations, we now move into this five-week series in the prophecy of Micah, one of the many warnings that God gave to his people about the judgment that would come if they did not change their ways. In one way, this prophecy is similar to Lamentations in that what what is predicted in Micah is exactly what happened and what we saw in Lamentations. But there are also glimpses of great hope and great salvation scattered throughout this prophecy that can give us hope for our day and for our future as it offered the Jews of Micah's day hope for their future. We begin with Micah chapter 1 this morning, a chapter of terrifying judgment that was predicted. But the focus of the chapter, in my view, is on the one who would execute that judgment. In fact, as I mentioned, the title of my sermon, Who is Like the Lord?, is also the meaning of the name Micah. Micah means who is like Yahweh, who is like the Lord. It's a fitting name that his parents assigned to him as he begins his prophecy talking about the Lord. In fact, he ends his prophecy over in chapter 7, verse 18, by using the meaning of his name again. Who is a God like you? This morning, I want to break Micah chapter 1 into three parts. First, a description of God as the great I am. Second, a description of God as the just one. That's going to be the bulk of the passage, 2 through 16. And then third, I want to talk about an application of God as the justifier. So God is the great I am, God is the just one, And then God is the justifier. So let's begin here with, he is the great I am in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now this opening verse of Micah's prophecy is a little unique among his fellow prophets of his day for a few reasons. First, 
this isn't the vision of Micah like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Nahum all begin. Second, also unlike Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos, this prophecy doesn't tell us how God called Micah to be a prophet. It simply says the word of the Lord that came to Micah. The emphasis in the opening line, as in several of the other prophets like Jonah and others, the emphasis is on the one who is giving the prophecy. And who is this one? He is the Lord. You see that's in small caps in your Bible. That's on purpose. Whenever you see the Lord in small caps, it's the, it's the personal name of God. It's the name Yahweh. It's the I am that I am. The name given to Moses all those years ago before he led the Exodus. It's the name that he uses with his covenant people. So when it says the word of the Lord, Yahweh, it's signaling divine revelation. The words that follow in this prophecy are God's words, not Micah's words. And so they are supremely important. And these words came to Micah of Moresheth. Now, we think that Moresheth was a town that was located southwest of Jerusalem near the Philistine uh, city of Gath, which you remember Goliath was from Gath. He wasn't a city boy, in other words. He wasn't from the capital. He was from the country. He was from the wilderness. He, w- he wasn't identified by his family. He wasn't Micah the son of so-and-so. No prominence here. No important family line here. Just his location. Moresheth was an important outpost for the kingdom of Judah. And although the opening verse tells us that Micah is relating a vision to us, because it says there at the end of verse 1, it's something that he saw. That word saw is used by prophets to indicate a vision of God. It's something that he saw about Samaria and Jerusalem. Those were the capitals of the divided kingdom. We'll talk about that in just a second. But Micah only names three kings of Judah here. Do you notice that? during whose reigns he prophesied. Jotham, who was a good king. Um, Ahaz, who you might remember was a bad king. And Hezekiah, that I might even humbly submit was a great king. And in fact, according to Jeremiah's prophecy, Micah's prophecy, and we'll get there when we get to chapter 3, Micah's prophecy is what led King Hezekiah to repent and lead a great revival in Judah. In fact, it's Micah's prophecy that is going to delay the judgment of God and the exile of Judah for about 120 more years. So this little prophecy had big importance in the kingdom of Judah. We'll get to that as we go through the book. It's interesting, though, that none of the corresponding kings from the northern kingdom are mentioned here. Uh, Those kings during this time were Menahem, Pekiah, Pekah, and Hoshea. Even though Micah is addressing the northern kingdom as well as the southern kingdom. He only mentions the kings from the south, the Judean kingdom. So a a quick review of where we are in biblical history here. 
you'll remember, Israel had been united under King Saul, under King David, under King Solomon. But after the death of Solomon, the kingdom split into two parts. The northern kingdom was with its capital in the city of Samaria, where that top arrow is pointing to. And then the southern kingdom of Judah with its capital in the city of Jerusalem, where the lower arrow is pointing to. The northern kingdom consisted of ten tribes, the bulk of the tribes of, of Israel. And the southern kingdom only consisted of two tribes. And so as we read all the different prophets of the Old Testament, and there are many prophets in the Old Testament, right? Major prophets, minor prophets, all kinds of prophets. Some of the prophets are preaching to the northern kingdom. Some of the prophets are preaching to the southern kingdom. And some prophets, like Micah, are actually preaching to both, the northern and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is usually referred to in the prophets as Israel. So during this time period, when you read about Israel or the name Jacob, we'll see, it's referring to the north. When you read the name Judah, it's referring to the south. Now we know from history that the northern kingdom was conquered first uh, by the nation of Assyria. That came in 722 BC. And then the southern kingdom was taken by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar, in 586 B.C., almost 120-something years later. If it helps you to remember, I comes before J, Israel before Judah, N comes before S, north before south, and A comes before B, Assyria before Babylon. So some little helpful things there to help remember the order of all this. Because we're, we're not all real familiar with what's going on in this time period, right? So Micah is prophesying, we think, for about 35 years, around 750 B.C. So before either the north or the south had been conquered and taken into captivity. Micah is prophesying. His contemporaries were prophets that you're familiar with. One by the name of Isaiah, who preached in the south from Jerusalem. And two in the north, Amos and Hosea, lived at the same time as well. They were preaching to the northern kingdom. Jeremiah's coming along about 30 years later. We don't know a lot about Micah. What we do know from this prophecy, he was filled with zeal for the little guy, for the oppressed. For example, in chapter 3 and verse 8, we read that. We, we know that he delivered his messages of judgment with tears. We see that here in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. We know that he was sincere in his pleading with God's people to repent. Over in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, we see that demonstrated. One author puts it this way. Micah preaches with Amos's passion for, for, against injustice. If you've ever read Amos, it's a treatise against injustice. He preaches with Amos' passion against injustice and with Hosea's heart of love. We see both sides in Micah. We don't see any evidence in the prophecy of repentance among the people. And of course, we know that even years later, over a century later, when, this nation, when these nations are conquered, there's not evidence of repentance. Repentance. 
But he ends his prophecy, and along the way, we'll also see, he gives us glimpses of bright hope and forgiveness and restoration, and they're beautiful, and can't wait to get to them. That's the Lord. He is the great I am. He's the personal one. He's the covenant-keeping God. He's the one who's giving his words to his people. Now, secondly, notice, he is the just one. And this is where we want to go through the bulk of the verses today. Verses 2 through 16 can be divided very easily, very nicely, into two parts. So if you're taking notes, verses 2 through 7 deal with the judgment coming to Samaria. Verses 8 through 16 deal with the judgment coming to Judah. So Samaria, the capital of the north, and Judah, the kingdom of the south. But before we take a glance at the judgments, we need to see the just one. And Micah gives us a glimpse of him here in these opening verses. Verse 2, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. The just one issues a summons to the whole world. All of you, listen. All of you, pay attention to the judge's witness against sin. God's sovereignty is clear on display here. It's emphasized in the names of God used here. Lord God, that's his name, Adonai and Yahweh. You see God again there in small caps, Always look for those small caps. Adonai, God, the high king, the creator, the most powerful one, the Lord of hosts, and Yahweh, his personal name. And then again, the word Lord, Adonai. And then just after that, the Lord with small caps again, Yahweh. Over and over again, he, Micah wants us to see God is speaking. He is the creator. He is the ruler of the whole earth. He is the powerful one. And he is coming. The process is spoken of in three ways. He's witnessing from his holy temple. The word there could be better translated palace. His holy palace. He is coming out of his place. And he will come down. And watch out when the Lord God comes down. Because He is going to tread upon the high places of the earth, the mountains and the valleys. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that the high places were the locations of the worship sites in Israel. That goes all the way back to David's time. They would put these altars way high up on the tops of hills or the tops of mountains and so would the pagans, by the way. And if your God didn't answer you in the way that you wanted, well, you could always go over to the next hill or the next mountain to find the next high place and try that God. And over time, Israel had given over to full-on idolatry. And you can see the foolishness of idolatry here. 
Man's thinking, the closer he can get to God to worship, the better, right? And that goes back, you know, all the way to the Tower of Babel, right? Men trying to build up a way to heaven to get close to God. But God's way has always been exactly the opposite. He comes down to us. He came down to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. He came down at the Tower of Babel. He came down and filled the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, later in the temple. Ultimately, He came down and took on flesh in the person, the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus. And when God comes down, our high places... Our safe places, our strong mountains, the closest to heaven we can get, those places get shaken. Those places get stepped on, demolished by the one true God. He tramples on the high places. Verse 5, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? The word Jacob is used 11 times in this prophecy. And all those times it refers to, as I mentioned before, the northern kingdom. That's, remember, Jacob was the name of the patriarch that was later changed to Israel. Right? Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So when you see Israel or when you see the name Jacob, they're both referring to to the northern tribes. Micah asserts here that the capital cities have led the respective kingdoms astray. Samaria is the transgression of Jacob. Jerusalem is the high place or the sin place of Judah. Then he focuses all his attention to the sentencing of Samaria first. Verse 6. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Basically, the Lord is going to totally wreck Samaria. Verse 6. He is going to break their idols into pieces. Verse 7. The wages here in verse 7 is a reference to what was purchased with the money from temple prostitutes. Probably the idols that are mentioned there in the same verse. Samaria, the city, the capital city of the north, was known for having incredibly thick walls. Five feet thick stone walls surrounding her. An impregnable type of a city, fortress. And, and, um, and here the Lord says, um, I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. It won't stand. They were also known for having huge gold and silver overlaid idols in her temple. We read from from that in, in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 40. And Micah is saying here that when the Assyrians come in and wreck Samaria, they will take the idols 
that had been made, that had been formed, that had been sculpted, that had been overlaid with silver and gold from the money that the temple prostitutes were paid. And when the Assyrians come in, they're going to take those idols, they're going to take those things that had been purchased with that sick, evil money, and they're going to use the proceeds for them to go pay more temple prostitutes for their services. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 17 and 18 had warned against this kind of evil money. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. And none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. But that's exactly what had happened in the capital of Samaria, in the northern kingdom. So the first reason for God, the just one, coming down in judgment is to punish the northern kingdom for their idolatry. He is totally just in doing so, right? Then he turns his attention in verses 8 through 16 to the southern kingdom, where he lives, where he's from. Verse 8, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Micah's going to mourn here. He's going to weep and he's going to wail. And this is what God's people should do. Our hearts should break for what breaks God's heart. And Micah feels a little bit of that right here. The for this at the beginning of verse 8 ties what follows to what has come before. Micah's saying it was the rebellion of the north that has now even infected the south, his home. And he's sad. He's sad as to what is coming as a result. These extreme references here to his nakedness and to to wailing like animals. That's what jackals and, um, and ostriches were known for. They're shrieking the way they wailed. This was a mourning ritual that, uh, that, that Micah is describing here. He's mourning. He's, he's, um, he's lamenting. Isaiah did this as well in anticipation of the conquering of Judah. If you read Isaiah 20, verses 2 through 4, Isaiah strips himself of clothes and weeps and wails as well. Sin has permeated this nation, and it has even gotten, oh, brothers and sisters, it has even gotten to Jerusalem. It's a fatal wound, Micah says. The gates of the city of Jerusalem, the gates of the city were where the courts were located. The gates of the city is where justice was meted out. No more. No more. So the just one is coming down to exact his justice. And then we have a series of verses from 10 all the way down to 16. I'm not going to reread all of these because we struggled through them once. But um, in these final verses, the just one addresses specific cities by name. 
And a couple of initial notes on these before I, I, I tell you kind of what Micah did here to, to draw attention to this. In verse 10 and in verse 15, there are references to David's life. That, that sort of bookend this section together. The first is the phrase, tell it not in Gath, in verse 10, which every Israelite would know that phrase. It was a reference back to the death of King Saul and his son Jonathan at the battle on Mount Gilboa. That phrase, tell it not in Gath, came from David's lament, which is captured in Scripture in 2 Samuel 1 and verse 20. And it was a warning to the Philistines not to boast in what they had accomplished in destroying the Lord's anointed. And, and Micah is saying, don't boast about, you pagan nations, don't boast about what the Lord is going to do here. The second phrase um, comes from uh, the reference to Adullam in verse 15. And if you remember your, your Old Testament history, the cave of Adullam is where David hid when he was escaping Saul, when Saul was after him. Before he was uh, enthroned as king in Jerusalem, Saul wanted to kill him because Samuel had anointed him as the next king. And David hid there, and the glory of... Um, the glory in verse 15, the glory of Israel is a reference to a king who will come to Adullam. So just a couple of notes here. One other quick note, verse 13, notice the sin of Lachish is said to have been the beginning of sin for Judah. Do you see that there? The beginning of sin. And if you again, if you do a little Bible history, you'll, you'll find that Lachish is where Solomon stored his chariots. You can read about that in 1 Kings 9 and 1 Kings 10. And what happened when Solomon stored his chariots there? Well, he was defying, wasn't he, the command of the Lord as something that the king was not supposed to do. Remember, he wasn't supposed to build up gold and silver. Solomon did that. He wasn't supposed to store up wives. Solomon did that. He wasn't supposed to store up chariots. And Solomon did that. At Lachish. Now, why would a powerful king like Solomon be ordered by his God not to store up great military might? Because as his father David righteously expressed back in Psalm 20 and verse 7, some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It was misplaced trust starting with the king, that signaled the beginning of the end for God's people. Now, look at these verses for a second. There's something creative and interesting that's going on here. There's a literary device that Micah uses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that you don't see in the English, unfortunately. It's in the Hebrew. But what's happening here is God is using wordplay to associate the names of these cities with the punishment that they receive. So if you look at verses 10 down to verse 16, let me read it for you as one commentator reworded this section in modern English so you can kind of see what's going on here, okay? So you look at your Bible and let me read kind of a modern retelling of this and you'll get the idea. Don't gossip about this in Telltown. Don't waste your tears. In Dustville, 
roll in the dust. In alarm town, the alarm is sounded. Verse 11, the citizens of Exitburg will never get out alive. Lament, last stand city. There's nothing in you left standing. Verse 12, the villagers of Bittertown wait in vain for sweet peace. Harsh judgment has come from God and entered Peace City. 13, all you who live in Chariotville, get in your chariots for flight. You led the daughter of Zion into not trusting not God, but chariots. Into trusting not God, but chariots. Similar sins in Israel also got their start in you. Go ahead and give your goodbye gifts to Goodbyeville. Verse 14, Mirage Town beckoned, but disappointed Israel's kings. 15, Inheritance City has lost its inheritance. Glory Town has seen its last of glory. And 16, shave your heads in mourning over the loss of your precious towns. Go bald as a goose egg. They've gone into exile and aren't coming back. Now that's not a literal translation. You have a literal translation in front of you. But that's the idea. The names of those cities mean something. And it's associated with their punishment. If I was to put it even in more personal terms, maybe it would be like Micah saying this, Fishers, you will soon be caught in a net. A ton of disaster is coming to Irvington. Cumberland is about to be encumbered with tragedy. Greenfield will be brown with decay. Trouble is racing quickly to Speedway. You get the idea? That's what's going on here. But while this is a clever use of wordplay, the design of these verses was never to make people laugh. The original audience, hearing these judgments on first Samaria and now Judah, would have been horror-struck, especially by the final words of verse 16. They shall go from you into exile. The judgment is certain. It is comprehensive. It is deserved. It is just. Think about it this way. From the time of Abraham in 2000 B.C. to Moses in 1500 B.C., to David in 1000 B.C., to Micah in 750 B.C., God's people have been consistently sinful, complaining, idolatrous, rebellious to their faithful, covenant-keeping, merciful, and yet just God. And His punishment that is coming is just. But friends, not only is he the just one, thirdly and finally, I want you to notice that he is the justifier. Before I suggest some applications for us this morning, 
And without giving too much of the rest of the book away ahead of time, I think it's important for us, after a chapter like this, to answer this question. How can sinful humanity stand before a divine judge who is both just and holy and who has been a witness to all of its deeds? How can we stand before him? There's a lesson here for all of us. And I think the text itself hints at that answer back in verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. The whole world is called to pay attention to its relationship with the just God of creation. Micah chapter 1 tells the story of one society that ignored his word. And so the question to all of us watching and paying attention and hearing is this. What will you do with the word of the Lord? I love the theology of the book of Romans. In chapter 3 and verse 26, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul tells us the answer to the question, who can stand? Listen to this wonderful verse. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God be both the just one and the justifier of sinners? Well, because of verses 23 to 25 that come right before it. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Jesus became the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the covering for our sins. God is still just because the sin is still punished. But instead of punishing us for it, He punished Christ for it on the cross. We are justified by His grace as a gift because we don't deserve it, do we? Now just stop and think about it for a minute or perhaps the rest of your life. You will never, ever, those of you in Christ, you will never, ever have to bear the wrath of God. Just think about that. Like these rebellious people in Micah 1 and their descendants would. And as we read in Lamentations and as we read in the book of Revelation, all of lost humanity will. Why will we not bear the wrath of God? Because Jesus took your place. Because Jesus took your sin God is the just one, but thank the Lord Jesus that he is also the justifier. The Lord is our salvation. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back to the front. We're going to sing here in just a moment and prepare for the the ending of our service. So that's the text. What do we do with it? What's our takeaway today? Let me just give you several thoughts 
And you can develop them further in your ABF classes or later conversations, personal study. One thing I think we ought to all think about is be careful what you worship. Be careful what you worship. Even churches can become places where idols are worshipped rather than God. Do you realize that? Idolatry is not only a crime against truth, it's a crime against love. When we worship things other than God, we're not just offending our religion, we're offending a person who loves us so much that he gave his son to die for us. Spiritual idolatry, spiritual adultery, cuts deep into the heart of God, just as it would in a marriage. If your spouse went out and committed adultery, you know how that would offend you deeply, cut you deeply to your very heart. It's the same way with God. It offends him personally. He cuts him deeply. C.S. Lewis wrote, All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, all that we call human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Be careful what you worship. Something else to think about. Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you're in any doubt as to the wrath of God against sin, after going through lamentations the last six weeks, you're reminded of it again in our text this morning. The judgment of Israel in Micah's time is a foretaste of the judgment of the world that is coming. At the end of history, a divine fire will consume all the enemies of God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8 writes about it. Melting not only all the idols, not only crushing the mountains and splitting open the valleys, as it talks about here with fire, but even the very elements of creation will be melted, according to 2 Peter 3.12. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Reflect on that. A third thing. We should lament for our countries, for our cities, for our towns, as Micah once did. Our grief for what is coming at the end, the judgment of God on a lost and rebellious people, that, that should motivate us, that grief that we should have for that coming judgment should melt any hardness of heart in ourselves. And wake us up to the need for bold, evangelistic testimony in our daily lives. If you really believe that men and women who are lost are going to face this judgment, it should motivate you to be bold and courageous and speak of your Savior and of His grace. Another thought, we should also live in thanksgiving that Jesus rescued us from God's wrath by bearing it himself on the cross. Don't ever let that idea get dull or die in your heart, brother or sister. Be thankful every day, every morning, every night 
that Jesus took your place and bore the wrath of God. Be thankful. Finally, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, according to John 3.36, the wrath of God remains on you. And we would love to show you today how Jesus provided a way of escape. How Jesus provided salvation for you. How Jesus is salvation. And after the service, we'd love to talk to you. Someone will be right over here to your left in the cubicle, the prayer room over there that can open a Bible and show you how to take those initial steps in following Jesus. Perhaps the Lord is leading you to be baptized, to follow him in believer's baptism, to publicly confess that he is your Savior. Perhaps to join the membership of our church in our mission to share Jesus with our neighbors and follow him together. Whatever the Lord is prompting you to do to grow in your spiritual life. Perhaps to be more of a bold bold witness for Christ. Perhaps to be more repentant and, and, and have hatred for sin. Perhaps to be more thankful for the work of Christ. Whatever it is, maybe all of that, that the Lord is working in your life. Get someone to pray with you about it, to encourage you about it, to give you some counsel from God's Word. That might be a brother or sister sitting in the pew right next to you, or that might be a counselor that can help you in the prayer room. But take advantage of that today.